I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to win that war, Afghanistan would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be gone. It would be over in literally in 10 days. Jonathan Swan of Axios is reporting that President Trump has repeatedly asked experts about using nuclear bombs to stop hurricanes. Axios reports during one hurricane briefing at the White House, Trump said, I got it, I got it. Why don't we nuke them, according to one source who was there? North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. So you would, you would rule in the possibility of using right, nuclear weapons against ISIS? Well, I'm never going to rule anything out. Right. And I wouldn't want to say, even if I felt it wasn't going, I wouldn't want to tell you that, right. because at a minimum, I want them to think maybe we would use it. Several months ago, uh, a foreign policy expert on the international level went to advise Donald Trump, and three times he asked about the use of nuclear weapons. Mm. Three times he asked, at one point, if we have them, why can't we use them? With the 2020 presidential election looming large, it's a good time to take a look at the absolute power the President of the United States has over U.S. nuclear weapons. The United States maintains some 4,000 weapons in its active nuclear stockpile, more than 1,000 of which are ready to be launched within minutes of the President giving the order to do so. Strangely enough for our democratic system, the order to launch 1 or 1,000 nuclear weapons and likely end the world as we know it doesn't require the approval of the Joint Chiefs, it doesn't need to be cleared through Congress, and it doesn't need to be validated as constitutional by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Instead, our system evolved to rely entirely on the judgment of one person. Regardless of their experience, mental or physical health, or even the stress or duress that person might be in at the time of giving an order that could end the lives of millions around the globe. But why? Why in a system supposedly created with an eye towards checks and balances on every branch of the government, do we put world-ending power in the hands of one inevitably fallible human being? Welcome to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, an analyst at the Center and your host. With the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States, a man who during the 2016 campaign supposedly asked, but if we have these weapons, why can't we use them? That question started to come to stark relief for many Americans. Now, with a new election rapidly approaching, and President Trump's opponent having very different views about the purpose of U.S. nuclear weapons, we're going to explore how and why the U.S. system is set up the way it is. To do this, we interviewed Dr. Alex Wellerstein, a historian of science at the Stevens Institute of Technology, who studies nuclear weapons, and the creator of the famous tool, NukeMap, which I hope you all go and try. Let's take a listen. So take us through it. We have more than 4,000 nuclear weapons in our active military stockpile. 
The president decides that he wants to use one or or many of them. What happens after that? What does the chain of command actually look like between the president deciding that he wants to use a weapon and then it actually getting used? So it's complicated, and, the, and there may be multiple chains of command. That's kind of my current understanding of a lot of the literature out there, is that this is a deliberately redundant system. It's a system that was designed in the Cold War. It's a system whose primary goals are to make sure that it's survivable so that within minutes, a president can make a decision and execute that decision and have it happening. And, and this is in situations where literally there might be a couple minutes between a detection of an attack and, you know, some sort of disruptive attack, you know, EMP or something like this, right? This is the kinds of things that the planners are worried about. And the idea is that if a president does make that decision, that that order will be propagated extremely rapidly, within a couple of minutes at most. And so this leads to not having just one simple approach to it, because if you if there was only one way, and if, if it turned out, oh, it can only go through the Joint Chiefs of Staff, then that presents a vulnerability. So there are different chains of command described in these different doctrines that have been made public. There are also people who have studied this, uh, like Bruce Blair at Princeton, who have seen this from the inside, but can't really, uh, don't, don't have a lot of always documents to back it up, because he saw some of these things or talk, got things from people, but it's not something that got released and things. So we have slightly different versions of this chain of command. The basic version of this is that in, in a sort of ideal situation, you're in some kind of crisis scenario. The president is able to call a meeting with some of his top people. So we're talking about the Secretary of Defense. We're talking about maybe the head of STRATCOM, uh, Strategic Command. You're talking, you know, ideally, you probably want the Department of State on the line. You want the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? You're talking about the very top people, and you're, you're talking about setting up a very rapid, ideally encrypted conversation. Maybe it's in the Pentagon war room type area, or in the White House, or maybe it's just all on phones or computers, depending on what the circumstances. And these advisors will give the president uh, their assessment of the situation, and they will probably give the president options. This is, again, the ideal way to, that this goes about. And the president is free to listen to this advice if he wants to. He's free to also ignore all advice. He's free to not call these people together. But this is, again, what the sort of standard scenario would look like. None of this, these other people are capable of giving an order, and none of these other people have any legal uh, we, we can talk about whether they can defy an order, but they, they don't have any veto power. They're not required to give consent for this mm -hmm. order to be legal and valid. At that point, the president can then issue a use order that's going to be going through the military. Either some of the sources describe it as the head of strategic command. Some of them describe it as the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And these might be actual people or it might be their offices. So at that point, this gets formulated into an actual basically uh, legal, valid order for use. And and prior to this, they authenticate it's actually the president who's talking, things like that. I, I think a lot of attention gets put on the that side of it when, uh, in practice, that probably isn't going to be the hard part of it. And this is what the nuclear codes are and things like that, to have the president verify that he is the president. And there's probably other ways they can do that without nuclear codes, because it's it's probably going to be pretty obvious if it's the president or not. Right. Once it's it's formulated as an actual sort of launch order, depending on if you're talking about a missile from a submarine or from something from a, a, a forward base where you might have a bomber involved or, or a land-based missile, right? It's going to route its way through those chains of command. And they all have their different chains of command, and it's going to go through a massive array 
of communication software and satellites and all those things that I sort of just black box, all the command and control communication stuff. It's going to go through all that, and it's going to eventually end up in the lap of somebody whose job it is, and usually there's two somebodies, uh, to actually enable this warhead and launch this weapon. And so... In a way, what I find useful, instead of getting into all the details of this, because most of those details to me are not that important to this fundamental question of who's making the decision, I, tr- I tend to abstract that. And I tend to ask, okay, in, in any system, the American or whoever, at what point does it jump from a civilian to a military decision? Because that's usually the line that designates when people are going to be able to say no. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, not in necessarily every culture, but in, in many of them. And then uh, at what point does it jump from sort of the highest level person who could you could presumably imagine refusing an order or saying, I'm not going to do this, versus going through all those little cogs in the machine that will eventually end up with some 19-year-old or 22-year-old at the end of the line who's going to turn some keys or something like that. Once you've gone past whoever that person is who's going to say no and it becomes very diffuse, I don't think you have a really high chance of anybody stopping this order going through because every other person in that chain is trained on checklists and is trained on sort of passing the order on. And even the people in the silo, they are not sitting there having a deep philosophical thought about, oh, is this a really good idea for our current world situation? They know they, don't, they have incomplete information. They know that is not their job. They presume that all of these questions have been worked up much higher up in the chain. And, you know, they're just going to turn the key, I think, right. reasonably high assurance. So for me, it's the interesting movement is when the fact that it goes from the president directly to this military person and then goes through, that's where anybody, you could imagine that military person saying, this is nuts, I don't want to do this. And we could have a conversation about whether that's plausible or not, but there's no one else between them. And I think that's the key thing people don't really know about the American system. They often believe that like the Secretary of Defense is is, is an in-between person, and the Secretary of Defense could not pass on an order or refuse or something. And that's not true. It, it jumps from civilian to military, one simple step. And, and again, nobody's consent is required for it to go on. They do have to pass on the order. There are ways in which the military can refuse an unlawful order, things like that. But, but that's a separate order question. Well, and I think that that's actually sort of an interesting point. I know that you've talked about this before. I, I read a Washington Post article from you in which you discussed that the Air Force is actually, it seems like, weeded some officers out that have sort of these questions about, well, how do I know that this is a legal order? Is the president in a sane state of mind that he's given me this order to blow up Moscow or to fire nuclear weapons at Pakistan or whatever it is? And that once it gets down to that level, once it gets down to the actual launch officer level, they're not looking for actual consideration about the legality of an order. They want somebody to push the button, right? I mean, you wouldn't have a credible deterrent if you didn't have that kind of surety that it was going to get carried out. And this is the part that I think a lot of people miss about this. From the Air Force perspective, their major fear is not that the president is going to make a bad order. That has not been the major, that's not the fear that drove the creation of their current system. Their fear is that the weapons won't get launched, and if the Russians or whoever think that we're not going to launch the weapons, then they'll think that they can get a first attack on us or something like that. So the whole system is set up with the assumption that once you say go, you want everything to go. Not automated. They do have respect for human judgment. There are a few places 
in the system where human judgment can come in, but they're very small and they usually, they're not about this. They're not about high level things. They're things like, what if I haven't gotten confirmation from another missile, another person in the missile silo complex that this order is legitimate? Can I just do it anyway? How long do I have to wait to get that confirmation if they don't get back to me fast? Like that's the level of where the judgment is. It's not a question of, is this order a good idea? The president in the right state of mind. These people know that they have no access to information that would give them that information. And yeah, there's a famous case of Harold Herring in the 70s who asked a little too persistently, well, how do I know this is a good order? And they decided that made him unfit because it introduced all this doubt into whether or not an order would be executed. From the Air Force perspective, they think, and one can agree or disagree with this, I I find this not that reassuring myself, they think that any judgment calls have to be made by people way at the other end of the launch uh, command. So they think, okay, head of strategic command, if you ask head of strategic command, which people have done, oh, would you, if you got an order out of the blue that said launch all your nukes to China, just obliterate them, would you follow through? And they say things along the lines of, hey, we would be taking into account any context. If something, suddenly the president's erratic and comes out with this crazy order, no, we're not going to execute a crazy order. We're not robots here. We're not fools. We don't want to commit suicide. Right, and and I actually don't worry about that. I, I worry less about the crazy president than I do the president who makes a really bad idea decision, something that is not obviously just like ridiculous, but something that could be a plausible sort of position. So I worry much more about that sort of thing. But that's the area where they think any kind of even consideration of the legality of it, right? Is mm-hmm. it a war crime that you're asking to do? That's one of the few things where a uh, a soldier is not only able to but required to refuse to carry out an order. If it's a direct violation of the Geneva Conventions, they are not allowed to say, I'm just following orders. And they get lots of training on this. They do. But most of these war plans have already been vetted by lawyers who have already come up with interpretations that fit within the Geneva Conventions. And so once you get beyond that really top level of the military where you've got the lawyers plugged in on the phone call or something like that, the guy in the silo, he's not going to get into that. He's And if he's the sort of person, again, that's inclined to get into that, they probably would have figured that out at some point in the past and moved him to some other job. Right. So the president decides that he wants to launch a nuclear weapon, potentially. The Joint Chiefs or the SecDef and Secretary of State are involved. There have been concerns about presidents at that sort of higher level of delegation before, right? I mean, there's stories from Nixon's Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, that that as Nixon is sort of drunkenly roaming the halls during the Watergate scandal, that he orders that any presidential nuclear launch command be directed to him and Kissinger first, right? That there has been a high-level fear about presidents acting irrationally with nuclear weapons. Yeah, Nixon is the case where we have people after the fact saying that they did that. And it's very hard to back some of these stories up with documents. There's some hints that suggest maybe it's true. There's also some that make it sound like this is a story that Schlesinger told to magnify his own importance later or something like that. I don't know. It's possible. It's totally plausible. Nixon is one of those times where... Lots of people were at the time, and I think we sometimes forget about this now, but worried that he wasn't going to leave the White House and worried that he was. What, what happens if he starts really abusing the powers and abusing the alcohol at the same time? There, if we look back at the history of presidents, Nixon is somewhat exceptional up until maybe now, but we also have lots of other incidences of presidents who have had. We know, you know, Reagan had 
problems with Alzheimer's towards the end of his presidency. We know uh, John F. Kennedy had real problems with prescription medications. We also have health issues that affected various presidents at different times. So it's not just the Nixon, again, crazy president thing. You could have problems with a legitimate crisis. Imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis, but imagine JFK's meds are off that day. You can have these problems with with real situations where you might actually have some people in the president's orbit, depending on who these people are, advocating for the use of nuclear weapons. This is one of the reasons uh, low-yield nuclear weapons make me uncomfortable. It's not just the escalation problem, which a lot of people have talked about, but it's also because they make it harder for people to push back against using them if you have real pro-nuclear hawks in your National Security Council or in your Joint Chiefs or anything like that. And we do know from the past that such people have been in such positions, uh, say, during the Korean War, uh, during even the Vietnam War, things like that. Right. And, and it, that they complicate the sort of legal aspect of it and the, and the moral aspect of it in ways that worry me that a president could get co-opted into thinking it was okay just a little nuclear weapon, and it would be very hard to come up with a robust argument against use in that kind of environment. So this is what I mean by I don't just worry about the crazy president thing. I worry about the sort of willful president in a ambiguous situation who reaches for nuclear not because it's actually a good idea, and because I, I, I find very hard to believe that you really need to use them in most imaginable situations. Uh, but because it's because it's on the table already. Right. And this is actually, if I understand this correctly, this a similar sort of concern is actually where this sole authority vested in the president actually sort of comes from, right? The fear that, that it would be military commanders and generals that would be actually more open to using these weapons and using them often on the battlefield, not as a deterrent, but actually continuing to use them against Japan or in Korea or anything like that, right? Right. The whole system we have dates back to Harry Truman, and it didn't get codified until uh, 1948, which is kind of interesting. We had three years of being a nuclear power without it actually being codified who was responsible for ordering the use of the weapon. But even before 1948, Truman had taken steps to make it so that the military did not have physical control of the weapons at all. And, and that was a sort of de facto way of keeping himself in charge. And it was a very much a live deal in the 1940s, a live question. Who should have this power? Is it a military decision? Is it a political decision? Should at least the military be able to make recommendations? And Truman and the Truman administration really interestingly took a position that at the time was not necessarily an obvious one. And certainly if, say, Eisenhower would be president at this time, probably wouldn't have been taken. But they basically hogged all the power for the president. And this was a way to keep the military at bay. And and it's very explicit in Truman's own discussions of this. We have some accounts of conversations he had around this time, because the military resisted this intensely and said, you should give us the weapons and we should have a say. If if this is the right weapon for the job, we should be able to use it. We shouldn't have to make this some sort of international hubbub. And Truman's sort of comments are, you have to understand that these are not military weapons, that they should not be used unless they have to be used, that they are, the term he uses in 45 is their most efficient means of mass slaughter of women and children. Uh, These are really strong. It's a strong uh, moral and emotional sentiment that he attached to it. And it's interesting that that's the beginning of the system. And sometimes when I talk about this, I like to emphasize what are the fears uh, of any given president's 
presidency or given time, and how did that shape the policy? And the fear for the Truman one was the military will use nukes. That's not our fear today. Nobody's really uh, afraid of uh, rogue generals using nukes, because in part, uh, over these decades, the military has really internalized, I think, the idea that they don't make the policy, they just carry it out. But they, they do sort of present-day American military. All of their doctrine says... It essentially, it not only says we don't make this decision, but it, it sort of seems to say we don't want to make this decision. This is not our job. You tell us to use the nuke, we'll use the nuke. But that is not something we want to wrestle with or get blamed for or anything like that. You do that as a political thing, that's a political question. Now we have different fears, of course. Interesting. So I think this this segues to sort of what are the solutions to this problem? If the military thinks that this is a political decision, then there has to be some sort of political oversight about how and when we use a nuclear weapon. Does that rest with Congress? Does that rest solely with the president? Um, How do you think we actually prevent misuse of these weapons? Or or how can we act to prevent misuse of these weapons? So it's it's tricky. And, And I definitely think it's not the military's job to do it. I actually totally agree with that sentiment. And I believe very strongly in the civilian military split. They are different types of jobs. They different types of considerations. And I do believe that the use of nuclear weapons at this point in time uh, is a, certainly a political issue, both domestically and internationally. So for me, it's any solution has to be found in the sort of civilian side of that equation. And then you keep the military as the people who execute orders if they are what you define as a legal and good order. Uh, how do you want to change how you define as a legal and good order is the question, right? So some proposals have been things like no first use, which a way to phrase that is, if a nuclear weapon hasn't already gone off, then no nuclear use order is or, or hasn't been launched. Uh, the no nuclear use order is valid, right? That's another way to rephrase what no first use could mean. Right. Uh, that, that's one option. Personally, uh, my the things I'm interested in are more questions like, if it wasn't just the president who had the ability to say yes, or to put another way, if there was somebody who had the ability, totally legal, doesn't have to be appealing to the Geneva Conventions, right? doesn't have to be a war crime, to say no, who should that be? How many should there be? What should the procedure be? And one way I found useful for thinking about this has been to look at how other countries have set up their systems. Uh, from what we know, which is not totally transparent, of course, the U.S., for all of its secrecy, is much more transparent about these things than, say, uh, China is, for example, or France or things like that. But uh, scholars have, over the years, come up with reasonably plausible scenarios for how this works in different countries. And, and one of the interesting sort of revelations from this is that the U.S. is somewhat unusual, not totally unusual, but there are only a couple other countries that do it the way the U.S. does, where you put all of that power in your chief political leader, and then it just, there's no veto power in the system whatsoever. France doesn't do it that way. France splits up the order a little bit among a couple people. You need a couple people to agree. Russia doesn't do it that way, apparently. And again, this is hard to know for sure, but apparently in Russia, it is split between three people, and you need two of them to agree to use the weapon for it to be used. Israel apparently splits it between two people, from what we know of that. And again, super secret. They don't even acknowledge they have them, but apparently this can be known. China is really interesting in that it's supposed to be two different people, but at the moment, both of those people are the same person. Hmm. So, you know, because it's like the heads of two different committees, but it's the same person. So that's a sign of 
a system that's not really set up that well to prevent that. So when I look at this, I think, okay, what could you imagine actually being plausible in the American system? There have been proposals for, let's make Congress have to authorize something first. Let's ask lots of people for their opinions. I, I think those are very easy to say. That's not practical. That wouldn't work with the fear of being having to make this decision quickly. There are some plans that involve what I would call a pretty radical restructuring of our nuclear position so that we wouldn't have to make that decision quickly, right? So you'd be able to survive a first attack and then make your decision. That I mean, you know, I can see the merits of that. Again, it's hard for me to imagine actually selling that, basically. For me, the easiest answer is to say, well, what's like the minimum fix that you'd like? <laughs> is it one other person? Is it two? It's probably not 10. At some point, it gets hard once you start increasing the number, but you could imagine putting one or two other people in there. The Russians do it. The Israelis do it, right? Who's more afraid of being nuked than Russians and Israelis, right? So mm -hmm. um, presumably, there's ways to get around this. Now, so, so sort of a final question here. Do you think that deterrence concerns outweigh the concern of an illegal or unethical use of nuclear weapons? So, so what you're talking about, exactly, right? That, that having another layer of security on whether or not the United States can use a nuclear weapon somehow decreases the deterrent value of our force. It might. Let's just hypothetically say it did a little, right? Just a deal with the hard case. Would it reduce it down to nothing? Would it reduce it down to the credibility? Of I don't think so. We've always had these balances of what we're afraid of and what we value. This has been present throughout our force structure since the beginning. So it, in the same way that in the Eisenhower administration, they were really afraid of some kind of like sneak attack type thing. And so they distributed lots of nuclear weapons, which had no controls over them on them, physical, uh, no PALs, no locks. They, they put many of them overseas, sometimes in nations that were somewhat unstable, right? And then in the Kennedy administration and towards the end of the Eisenhower, people started to say, you know, we value not getting hit in a first strike, but we also don't want some fool on the base to accidentally set off World War III, right? We don't want a crashed weapon to detonate and, you know, cause a lot of problems. We don't want uh, our guys in a base in South Korea to see something go off on the horizon and assume that the end is here, and then they all just rush, rush out and go with their plans. And so this is why we put in PALs and locks and procedures that made it a little bit harder. Do those procedures, does a PAL get in the way of your deterrence? Sure, right? Like, what if the codes get disrupted? What if they don't work? What if the thing is broken? This is what the Air Force said and why they resisted this technology for a while. We don't want to put locks on our missiles. We need the missiles to work. In the end, the fear of it accidentally going off was enough to balance out any potential loss of deterrent capability. Uh, and I feel like the same thing could happen here. If, if we imagine a situation, here's a, here's a bare minimum situation. What if to have a nuclear weapon order be valid, the president had to get active assent from the Secretary of Defense, and the Secretary of Defense was allowed to say no, right? Mm -hmm. AKA the system that a lot of people actually think we have that we don't. Do we really think that the Russians or the North Koreans 
or the Chinese, do we really think that they're going to be sitting there thinking, ha, 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 now they'll be so indecisive, they'll never be able to respond to a full nuclear attack. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? These are like cartoon villains. They're not real people. Separately, let's imagine you're worried that, oh, well, if they knew the Secretary of Defense was important, they could just kill the Secretary of Defense or something. That's fine. Have a system that if you can't contact the Secretary of Defense in a reasonable enough time, and the military agrees it's a reasonable enough time, then it reverts back to sole use. That incentivizes you not killing the Secretary of defense, right? right. Uh, so you can you can come up with solutions pretty easily to a lot of these kind of operational tactical concerns. They they don't bother me that much, mostly because I, I really don't think that our enemies are sitting there second guessing. To put it one other way, if the Russians don't require a sole unilateral use, and they're as paranoid about anybody as anybody is about being attacked and things like that, they have a large, long history of being worried about that for some good reasons, uh, then why do we need to be more paranoid than the Russians, right? Like, if they can get away with having it, or, or Israel can get away with having a non-unilateral authority system, why can't we, who has so many weapons and so much technology and so many sensors and all of these sorts of things. This is why I just don't find the strategic uh, objections very plausible, but you have to take them seriously and you have to say, sure, like that might gum up the works a tiny bit, but what you gain from that is probably more assurance down the line that the order is a good one. The military no longer has to sit around and, and hem and haw about whether or not it wants to obey this order or not. They could smooth their wheels a lot faster. Your guy in the silo, he feels really good about turning that key now because he knows that all of these orders have been vetted to at least two people. Maybe you actually gain something and remove some uncertainty and doubt by doing that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So at the end of the day, the United States still has thousands of nuclear weapons, right? We still have a nuclear deterrent. The real problem that we need to consider now is how do we ensure that through miscalculation or misuse or madness that they're not used incorrectly, right? That, that some accident or some misuse of them doesn't happen and all of a sudden starts World War III. This is a continuing problem that's been around for a long time, but it's one that we still need to fix, right? We do not live in the best of all possible worlds. We do not live with the best of all possible command and control systems. I think there's room for improvement. There's certainly room for discussion, which, unfortunately, people have been very averse to discussing this for a long time because it seems like you're, you're calling into question whether or not the president is sane, and maybe you are calling that into question. But this is something that a conversation needs to be had by any people who take seriously the idea that individual human beings are highly fallible. And it doesn't matter. Maybe you think the current president is the most stable, rational individual who would never do anything wrong. That, you know, God bless you. Good job. Okay. But let's imagine that you're afraid that President AOC in, in a few presidential elections is going to be coming and she's totally unstable. Whatever you're afraid of, imagine the worst person in who could become president and recognize that the American system allows them to become president. You know, when we tell kids anyone can become president, that's a threat, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, as well as a promise, right? So, uh, Let's set up a system that does not require a president who is completely superhumanly cool, superhumanly rational, superhumanly not on medication or, or having any kind of mental illness, despite the fact that, you know, most Americans have some form of mental illness, right, diagnosable. Let's imagine a system that takes seriously the idea that individual people have their problems, and then let's think about what the next steps would be if you took that seriously. Absolutely. Alex, this has been tremendous. I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking to us about this. 
No one man should have the power over life and death of the whole world. Even the best of people, the most competent leaders, are still fallible, still just people. The fact that the system was designed to have no checks and balances runs counter to essentially every other part of our democratic system. In a crisis, there is no place for real discussion, no check to see if the president is having a mental breakdown or is drunk at the time. Once the order comes from the president, the people involved in the launch chain are just supposed to execute the order. They assume that the order is a legitimate one, and they just diffuse it down to its component commands and launch officers. I don't know about you, but apocryphal or not, the story of a drunk Richard Nixon wandering the halls of the West Wing during the Watergate scandal, looking for some way to distract the nation, possibly with nuclear weapons, haunts me. Or even a good leader, under an enormous amount of stress. Like Alex said, imagine the Cuban Missile Crisis, but imagine if JFK's meds had been off. This seems like just too much power and responsibility for one person to have. In every other part of the nuclear chain of command, we have safeguards to prevent an accidental, misguided, or malicious launch. Indeed, the military requires a two-person verification system, like you've seen in countless thriller movies. Two people to turn the launch keys before the nukes can actually be launched. Why can't a similar system exist at the top? Why isn't there one check on the president's ability to launch Armageddon? Our society and our government are outraged and have spent millions of dollars investigating government officials for things like using private email servers from within government offices. Shouldn't we be just as concerned about the man with thousands of nuclear weapons who was impeached for soliciting foreign powers to help him win an election? Let us know what you think. Tweet at us at Nukes of Hazard. That's at Nukes underscore of underscore Hazard. Or at me, at Nuclear Wilson. You can also email us at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. We would love to hear from you. Before we end, we want to note that between the time this interview was recorded and this podcast episode was produced, famed former missileer and Global Zero founder Bruce Blair, whom Alex mentioned, passed away. He was one of the most brilliant minds in the nuclear arms control community, as well as one of the nicest people. We mourn his loss, and our thoughts are with his family and friends. We are proud to cooperate with the broader community, as well as Global Zero, to continue his important work. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time.